Guardian Unlimited. My question for discussion today is why in 2006 is there no mainstream party of the left or even a powerful left-wing voice within a party? Is socialism in this country dead? If it is, how and why has that come about? If it isn't, what prospects are there for a revival of the fortunes of the left in the foreseeable future? Who better to answer my question than a man who has been a lifelong socialist and the most prominent standard-bearer of the left of his generation? I'm fortunate to be joined by Tony Benn. Tony Benn, in 1974, when you were Secretary of State for Industry, the Labour Party manifesto promised sweeping nationalisation, more workers' control and an annual wealth tax on the rich. In 2006, less than a quarter of voters think that there is any ideological difference between Labour and the Tories, and you have yourself described New Labour as utterly committed to market forces, monetarism and global capital. My first question is whether this turn of events has come as a surprise to you. Well, it's not the first time it's happened. In 1930, when I was five and my dad was in McDonald's Labour cabinet, I went to number 10 Downing Street to watch the Trooping of the Colour and I met McDonald. He gave me a chocolate biscuit. And I've looked at Labour leaders with chocolate biscuits with considerable <laughs> suspicion ever since. But McDonald joined with the Tories and the Liberals and almost destroyed the Labour Party. I mean, played a notable part in building it up. But there were only 51 Labour MPs elected in 1931... Fourteen years later, it was a landslide. My dad was beaten in 31, got back again in a by-election in 37. And so I think you have to recognise that uh, opinion swings. But Mrs Thatcher was asked her greatest achievement, and she said, New Labour. And I think she's right. I mean, the Prime Minister said when he became leader of the Labour Party, New Labour is a new political party. Well, I'm not a member of it. I've never had anything to do with it. I'm not old Labour. It's not for him to reclassify my party. I'm a member of the Labour Party. And the Labour Party's always had socialists in it. It's never been a socialist party, rather as there are some Christians in the churches, exact parallel. But the churches have never been Christian in the way they behaved. So I see this as an ongoing argument. But at the moment, for the first time in my life, the public are to the left of what is called a Labour government. They don't want war, they don't want privatisation, they don't want pensioners on a means test, they don't want students saddled with debt. And so I feel at the moment, far from being isolated, I feel that the public are in favour of many of the things that that, uh, the left has advocated. But if you go to any of the three classical definitions of socialism, whether it's uh, a fundamental and irreversible transfer of uh, power and wealth to working people and their families, which is one of your definitions, I think, or a Marxist definition uh, of state control of the economy, uh, or a beverage definition of uh, promoting the welfare state. Um, For the last 29 years, uh, none of the governments that we have had in this country would, on your definition, be counted as a socialist government or anything approaching it. No, I think that's right. But my socialism comes via democracy. I mean, my family are funny. They all moved to the left as they got older. My granddad was elected in 1892. I never knew him. Became chairman of the OCC and uh, advocated the public ownership of the Port of London, advocated the public ownership of the telephone service, 
believed that local government was there to look after you from the cradle to the grave. My dad started as a radical liberal, joined the Labour Party and ended up on the left of the Labour Party. And it's perfectly true, as you said. What turned me, moved me to the left, was my experience of office. Some people start... uh, uh, you know, uh, as left-wingers and end up in the House of Lords. I've done it the other way around. Everything I've seen in my life has persuaded me that without a socialist analysis of what's happening, you simply don't understand what's happening. But I've never seen socialism as a destination on a railway line. You catch the right train, you get there. It's an ongoing struggle of people to get some control of their own destiny. And when I was 11, I read Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, and uh, I've still got it at home, and it... Um, Um, Hitler said, democracy inevitably leads to Marxism. Now, you work that out. What he said was, if you give people power, they will vote for left-wing policies, and it's right. And I think it'll happen again when I look at uh, Venezuela, I look at Bolivia, I look at all sorts of things that are happening. I I think these arguments are reappearing. Marx was voted the most popular uh, an important philosopher of our time. What on earth that meant, I don't know. But I think people sense that what's happening is not in line with what we're told. But if you look just at this country and you look at uh, the issues that have classically distinguished socialists from non-socialists, it's difficult, isn't it, to look at the last 29 years uh, as anything other than the electorate moving in the opposite direction to the direction that you have just described that you moved. Well, you have to go back over the history of it. You see, the theory is that it was always the left that wrecked the Labour Party. I don't believe that. Macdonald wasn't of the left. In 1951, when I was a new member of Parliament, I was six months there, Anar and Bevan resigned because the Americans forced Attlee to go for a rearmament programme. And uh, Bevan said, the Russians don't want to attack us, they haven't the power to attack us, and if we go along this route, it'll lead to McCarthyism or to a witch hunt. He was right. Then, you see, in 1981, it was the right wing of the Labour Party joined the SDP. So I don't believe that the theory that's the left has held us back. But what happened, undoubtedly, was that um, socialist ideas, if you like, got such a stronghold in Britain and even in America with Roosevelt's New Deal that Reagan and Thatcher launched a counter-revolution. And that was what the Thatcher period and the Reagan period were about. Reagan wanted to wind up the New Deal and Thatcher wanted to wind up the welfare state. And, of course, they used the press and uh, the examples of the uh, winter of discontent and so on. And then created a situation where... Neil Kinnock, who began as a raging left-winger, he gave up everything he believed in in order to get office, and in the end nobody believed a word he said about anything. And now we have a new Labour, which is a Thatcherite party. But, you know, I don't know whether the Guardian opinion polls are necessarily right, but recently there was this account that the Labour is now 19% below the Tories. And it's not because they want right-wing policies. I think they just don't want war and privatisation, and they don't believe what they're told. So, I mean, you have to live in hope, and I see the arguments I've put forward all my life gaining support everywhere. Well, you mentioned the Thatcher Revolution. Uh, I came across uh, a speech that you made, Daniel, in the lion's den, just uh, on the eve of the Thatcher Revolution uh, in 1978, where you addressed the European Committee of the Republican Party, the American Mm. Republican Party, uh, and you said it was subsequently published uh, under the title Why America Needs Democratic Socialism. Yes, I remember it. Uh, And what you said was, all the evidence points towards the inevitable emergence of democratic socialism as the next major force in world politics. 
Uh, and this is not just an article of faith to be proclaimed from some inner conviction, but arises from a study of the real situation which confronts us. And you then predicted that the next decade would see a growth of democratic socialism against the ideas of monetarism and corporatism. Well, ten years later, uh, we were halfway through the 17 years of Labour opposition. The Thatcher Revolution uh, had, was virtually complete, uh, and the Berlin Wall came down. What went wrong in the analysis? Well, I mean, the forecast was wrong. It's foolish to forecast. But if you look at America, I got the figures today in the most recent years in America the wealth of the wealthiest has grown at an enormous rate. The standard of living of the average worker has slightly fallen. The gap between rich and poor is very, very wide. American imperialism is in a desperate crisis in Iraq and Afghanistan and now seems to threaten Iran. And I don't think the world economy is quite as stable as the advocates of monetarism thought it would be. But I'm, I don't want a disaster because I don't believe disaster is the way forward. But I think when I look round the world that people sense that they have no power. And one of the interesting effects of the system that Reagan and Thatcher advocated of uh, handing over power to the central bank, which is not elected, to the World Trade Organization, which is not elected, to the IMF, which is not elected, to the multinational companies, which have no democratic legitimacy, is to create a one-party state in all, in every what's called parliamentary democracy. You look at Germany, Merkel was Germany's Mrs. Thatcher, had to do a deal with Schroeder. In America, Kerry and Bush couldn't put a postcard between them. In Italy, despite the bitter election, Berlusconi suggested a coalition with Prodi, and I don't see much between Blair and Cameron. And I think what's happening now now is that people feel they're not represented anymore they're being managed and I think, I've always thought this about democracy, I've never been somebody who went around um, lecturing people on the ideology of socialism, it's a ridiculous idea, but socialism comes out of an understanding of what's happening and then when people come with problems you, it helps you to understand them and put forward an argument, but I think the crisis at the moment is a crisis of democracy and I'm not so sure that the powerful people are quite as safe as they think they are. Because if you take the war this in Iraq, illegal, immoral and unwinnable. If you take the American economy, trillions of dollars of debt depending on China to buy dollars to keep it going. And I just don't... It doesn't look to me quite as secure and stable as you make out in quite properly reminding me that uh, the Reagan-Thatcher period has lasted ever since 79. It has, I agree with you. But then how do you fit that with your uh, belief that the public is, for the first time in, in your life, to the left of the parties? Because if that is right, why have the parties not followed uh, the public mood? Well, it's a very good question of why the Labour Party ignores people, and it does. I mean, the spin doctors advise the Prime Minister. You see, I divide politicians of any party into two categories, the signposts and the weathercocks. The signpost points his hand up, and you don't have to follow his advice, but if you come back ten years later, the signpost is still there. The weathercock hasn't got an opinion until he's studied the polls, talked to the spin doctors, met the focus groups. And I don't believe in weathercocks. And I think the Labour Party, under new Labour, or I say new Labour, concluded that you couldn't win by putting forward what you believed, and the best thing to do was to adopt Thatcher's policy, and that was why in 97 New Labour won for quite contradictory reasons. People wanted to change in 97, but the British establishment didn't want to change, and they quite correctly thought Thatcherism was safer under New Labour commanding the Labour Party 
uh, much safer than it would be under a weak leader major in a divided Conservative Party. And on the whole, capital prefers to have its policies advocated by people from the left, because then the left isn't there to criticise them. So I'm just giving you an analysis, but I'm not a pessimist at all. I think it's, a, it's always been a struggle, always will be a struggle. Every battle has to be won again. I'm not sure, you know, if Hansard was banned, um, there wouldn't be people advocating that and saying, yes, we can't have all these uh, stories of what's happening in the House of Commons. Uh, uh, and uh, the licensing of the press may come up again in the form of an attempt by the Americans to censor the Internet. And gradually, I think we're, we're realising that every generation has to do it again. All I can adv- adv- put forward in my opinions, my experience, but people have to decide for themselves, and sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it happens more quickly than you'd think. When you say that uh, it's a good question, why um, are the parties not following the public mood if the public mood is they can't. Uh, to, to the left? Well, if they can't, then why hasn't a new party grown up that reflects that mood? If the public is to the left of New, new Labour, uh, why has not, and New Labour is not prepared to go there, uh, which one would think is a little surprising given the focus groups, why has not a new left-wing party uh, grown up in its place? Well, that question is always being asked. So when people write to me and say the Labour Party is not socialist, I'm leaving it, I write back and say, well, you've got a wide choice. You can join the Socialist Party, Socialist Labour Party, Socialist Workers Party, the Scottish Socialist Party, the Socialist Party of Great Britain, the Communist Party of uh, Britain, Communist Party of Great Britain, Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist. You can join respect. And I say you've got a wide choice of socialist parties. The problem is with too many socialist parties, not enough socialists, the Labour Party. And one of the things that the new Labour has done is to drive socialists out of the Labour Party. But you can't make progress on your own. You have to work with other people. I mean, I've served in some very right-wing Labour governments, but at least in those days you could put your case in the Cabinet. I mean, we had eight full-day meetings at the Cabinet in January 68. I've checked it in my diary. Cabinet meets now for half an hour, long enough for the Prime Minister to tell them what he decided. And I think the biggest constitutional change brought about by New Labour is to recreate the medieval monarchy. We have the medieval monarchy. And I was thinking the other day about privy councillors. I've been a privy councillor for 40 years. He's never met. But my oath of allegiance was to the crown. Now, the advisers who come in are modern privy councillors. Their oath of allegiance is to the leader. They've no accountability to Parliament, to the party, to the public, but they advise the leader. And uh, we've modernised the House of Lords back to the 14th century because when it began... There were no hereditary peers. They were all life peers appointed by the king as his cronies. Now we've gone back to that. So I do think uh, understanding what's happening gives you a certain sort of audience. People listen, particularly if you don't want anything. And at 81, I don't want anything from anybody. I just want the right to think, explain what I think, and listen to people. Uh, now, maybe that will lead to a period of fascism. I know there are those who think it, it will. I'm not so sure. But it's possible that the forces are so great now that instead of using election to fight to change the system to serve the people who voted for you, you use your power to control the people who voted for you to see they fit in with the system. And that is what I think is happening. That's why there's such a massive disillusionment with parliamentary politics. People feel they don't believe what they're told and they think nobody listens to them. And they're right on both accounts. You you mentioned the establishment uh, preferring uh, to have its uh, interests protected by a party from the left rather than the right. Who do you mean by the establishment? 
Well, it means many things in the old days. It meant the old aristocracy, but they don't count now. I suppose it means the City of London and those people who operate in the global environment where they know exactly where their interests lie. And I think the City of London is extremely happy that Thatcherism is being pursued by New Labour, whereas if it was another Tory leader, the public would be up in arms against it. So New Labour's performing a very valuable function. That's why Murdoch likes New Labour. But uh, isn't it, it, it may be true that uh, they're very happy to, for New Labour to be advocating fighting their corner. Yes. But it doesn't really answer the question why the public, the British public, the electorate, has consistently rejected socialism for the last 29 years. Well, I mean, first of all, Labour leaders have rejected socialism. I mean, Kinnock rejected. Smith was a different category. I had a high regard for John Smith. Kinnock rejected socialism. Blair rejected socialism, Mandelson rejected socialism, and the media rejected socialism. So there are not many voices actually saying it. But when you do put the case, and I go around all the time doing meetings, I find there's quite an interesting response. People say, particularly if they don't think you want them to vote for them, because I always say this is a public meeting, but relax, I'm not asking you to vote for me. People say, well, listen to this guy. And I, I find it absolutely riveting going around. Wherever I go, I'm encouraged. And I go to Tory constituencies all over the place. So I just, all you're encouraging me, or seeking me to say I've lost, I've made a mistake, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm afraid I can't bring myself to say that because history doesn't stop, despite Francis Fukuyama said the end of history. I was in Calcutta when the book came out and I could see all the poor people on the streets, how glad they were that history had ended, they'd always be poor. It isn't like that. There's a, all progress comes from underneath, and I think underneath these movements are coming, but you're quite right, they haven't got political representation at the top. Well, there was a key moment, wasn't there, the 1983 general election, uh, where the uh, Labour secured only 27% of the vote. Uh, it uh, had only three of the 176 seats in the south outside London, uh, and they lost a quarter of the 1979 vote. And that was a vote in which the public was presented with a straightforward choice, the 1983 manifesto was, which I think Gerald Kaufman subsequently described as the longest suicide note in history, uh, arguably the most radical and most socialist manifesto there's ever been. Um, uh, it was rejected by the British people. Well, uh, half a minute. I mean, uh, a few months or a year or two earlier, 10% of the Labour MPs left the party, including two deputy leaders, formed up a new party which got massive press support, Two of our previous leaders attacked the manifesto during the election. Wilson and Callaghan both made speeches in the election denouncing the manifesto. And I, truthfully, I'm not surprised that that happened. Uh, but, and uh, I think it was it not just after the Falklands War. And the Falklands War, I mean, wars always make unpopular leaders popular. And I mean, the circumstances were such. And maybe looking back on it, it was too radical. But I don't think if we'd adopted the Kinnock policy in 83 to 1, because he tried it in 87 and it didn't win. He tried it in 92 and it didn't I don't think it was that. I think the circumstances at the time were uh, very difficult. We'd been in power for a long time. Uh, Mrs. Thatcher had massive support and so on and so on. But anyway, if you hold a belief, you don't give it up because you're defeated. I mean, I think... The, you have a duty to say what you mean, mean what you say, do what you say you'll do, and if you don't 
win, well, then you go on. You don't say, oh, well, it shows the whole thing was a disaster. I mean, I'm glad they haven't modernised the Ten Commandments. I can imagine what they'd be. Thou shalt not kill unless Bush tells you to. Thou shalt not commit adultery unless she's very attractive. And thou shalt not steal unless you need the money. I mean, uh, really, it's got to the point where everything people believe in has been to be, been abandoned in the hope of getting office. They've got office, but they haven't got power. Isn't the reality that one of the reasons why... Uh, Labour lost that election uh, and uh, the, the subsequent elections, uh, that the, there was a collapse, first of all, uh, in the working-class vote for Labour, and behind that there, was, there had been a very significant erosion in the proportion of voters uh, who were unionised and who were working in the manufacturing industries, so that Labour, the old Labour power base no longer existed. Well, it isn't really very valid as an argument because, you know, when there was a massive working-class vote, if you mean by working-class people in overalls and dirty fingernails making things in factories, we never had a Labour government. I mean, in 1900, there were three-quarters of a million uh, uh, miners underground. Three-quarters of a million. There was never a Labour vote then. No, don't ever forget this, that uh, Mrs Thatcher mobilised what we tend to call the Essex man, who was persuaded that the real enemy was trade unionism or immigrants or whatever it was, and it was very effective. I mean, that type of propaganda is very effective. And not a, I don't want to draw a parallel, it could be quite unfair, but it's not surprising that uh, the, uh, Hitler called his party the National Socialist Party. And there's always been that appeal. And I think one of the reasons why working people voted Tory was they felt let down by the Labour government. And indeed they were because the rearmament and, uh, and, uh, and all the problems over pay uh, did make people feel that no one was fighting for them, and that's true today. Well, the figures show that in 1983, uh, 90% of working-class voters favoured a ban on secondary picketing, 79% of manual worker workers wanted council houses to be sold off. Um, is there not uh, something in the proposition that uh, the, the the prospect of home ownership and share ownership uh, was something which was very attractive to people who had traditionally voted Labour. But we've always sold council houses so long as there wasn't a waiting list. And look at it today. If you're a young teacher or a young nurse trying to work in London today, where do you get a house? They're wildly expensive. The demand for council housing is on a massive scale, houses to rent. And if you take the question of the winter of discontent, you see that was all triggered off by the 1976 IMF crisis. I was in the cabinet at the time, we argued it all out. And we were told, if you do not make massive cuts in public expenditure, we will undermine the value of the pound. Dennis Healy, who was the Chancellor, with whom I had massive arguments, admitted later it wasn't necessary. We had the oil bubbling ashore. If we'd published the gold dollar and oil reserves at the time, the cuts wouldn't be necessary. But they were all made in the public services, and the winter of 1979 was triggered off by the IMF cuts of 76. So, as part of my argument, I'm not, uh, not self-justification anyway, part of the argument that if you look at the history of the years recently, you will realise it wasn't really the left that destroyed the Labour Party, it was the right. 
It was the rearmament program, it was the SDP, well, before that it was the IMF cuts and the SDP. And so I just have a different analysis. Um, and this theory is all over now by the shooting, or by the shouting, I should say, perhaps shooting would be more appropriate. Uh, it, it simply doesn't fit in with my experience. I can only put that to you. Well, you say that the left, it was the right that lost it, not the left. Because, yes. For example, the 1976 uh, IMF loan. Yes. Uh, and I think you had an alternative strategy, which was rejected by the cabinet. Yes. Uh, which would have in- included import controls yes. and things of that sort. Um, but uh, had you not, in fact, had, your, had the left not won the argument come 1983 in a manifesto which was arguing for nationalisation, giving workers the right to, a statutory right to have uh, cooperatives in their firms, yes. cancelling Trident, and an annual wealth tax. Yes, so well, very the, good arguments, weren't they? Well, the mo- the, you had won the argument within the Labour Party, but uh, you lost the argument in the country. Well, I mean, if you look at it, take the Trident now. We're being invited by the Prime Minister and the Chancellor to spend £25 billion on a Trident. Now, what use is a Trident against a suicide bomber? I was in Wales at the time, and I remember having a question from a Welsh woman who said, Tony, what do you think of the uh, atomic bomb as a detergent? She thought it was a detergent and not a deterrent. I said, it'd be very effective. It'd get rid of all the dirt in you as well. But that's a ridiculous argument. I mean, you've only got to see what's happened to Israel in Lebanon recently. One of the most powerful armies in the world wasn't able to beat a guerrilla force. And so take that argument. Now, the other argument about public ownership, who really is in favour now of the private ownership of the railways? What we're doing, I looked it up, we are using taxpayers' money to subsidise the shareholders of companies that run the railways at a loss. And it's mad. And I think the public ownership case is coming back again. So I'm not so sure that just because you don't carry the public when the media and all the powers that be are against you means that you're wrong. And as to uh, industrial democracy, well, Keir Hardy said 100 years ago, we've won political democracy. The job is now how to win industrial democracy. And when you look at the power of these huge corporations compared to the power of the people who create the wealth on which they depend for their profit, it's staggering. There will have to be a move to industrial democracy. Of course there will be. Well, I saw uh, in a piece that you wrote uh, uh, that you suggested the possibility that... um, for example, doctors and nurses uh, in hospitals should consider uh, the possibility of taking over the hospitals yes. from the managers. Yes. Um, is that something that you think oh, is the way forward? Absolutely. I mean, they've got all these management consultants. I don't consult uh, people listening to this or management consultants, but there's a lovely story I heard years ago about the boat race. It's about a boat race between a Japanese crew and the National Health Service, and both sides practiced long and hard, and the Japanese won by a mile. So the NHS, faced with this problem, set up a working party, which reported that the Japanese had eight people rowing and one steering, and the NHS had eight people steering and one rowing. So they brought in management consultants, and the management consultants confirmed the diagnosis, suggested that the NHS HS crew be completely restructured with three assistant steering managers, three deputy steering managers, a director of steering services, and the rower be given an incentive to row harder. And they had another race, this time they lost by two miles, so they laid off the rower for poor performance, 
and they sold the boat for a higher than average pay award for the director of steering services. There are too many management consultants and not enough managers in the hospital. And when I was in Havana years ago, they took me to their hospital, and I didn't want to see all the equipment because I knew it was a brilliant one. I said, how's the hospital run? And they said, well, very simple. We have three meetings a month. One is chaired by the management with the unions and the Ministry of Health. The second meeting is chaired by the unions with the management of the Ministry of Health, and the third meeting is chaired by the Ministry of Health with the management of the unions, and we discuss everything. And so I I really am not in favour of this top-down view at all. And I think industrial democracy would have a huge appeal because people feel they're kicked about, even quite well-paid people. A managing director of a company will go to the office and they say, clear your desk by lunchtime, and then suddenly they realise whose side they're on. So, anyway, you you triggered that off. You can cut it out of the podcast if you want to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you talked earlier about uh, weather vanes uh, in the Labour Party and the distinction between people who kept to their policies and those who didn't. Uh, And it rather echoed something that Charles Clarke said, uh, recently on uh, the, on the ropes on Radio 4, where he said, in the old days, the idea of the Labour Party was defined by a series of policy positions, unilateral disarmament, exit from the European Union, opposition to the sale of council houses, and nationalisation. The question then arose whether that range of policies were right for the current era. The whole odyssey that the Labour Party took from 79 to ni- 97 was an attempt to face up to the fact that these sets of policies were not things that the electorate thought should govern this country. Some people didn't go down that odyssey of change, and they remain as a group that's of no significance at all in the political life of the country. Now, as an objective analysis, uh, is he not right? Well, I'll tell you, I went to speak for Cherie Blair in the 83 election, put him in a diary, uh, I went because her dad, I, I knew anyway, the actor... Put me down. She was there with her husband, a lad called Tony. When he became, and in the speech, I argued all the things you've described in the 83 Manifesto. When Tony Blair was elected leader, uh, I wrote him a letter. I said, I didn't vote for you, but I wish you luck. Ninth Prime Minister, Prime Minister I'd known. And I had a letter back from him. I said, Dear Tony, thank you so much for your letter. I shall never forget the speech you made for Cherie, which was the finest statement of socialism I've ever heard. So I wrote back and I sent him the cassette because I had recorded it and I never heard another word. But he put all those views forward. Now, whether you believed them then, I'm not being, I'm not puning his integrity at all. But many of the people who denounced all this were advocating it. And I don't think you should say what you don't believe. I think uh, Mrs Thatcher, although I disagree with everything she said, she was a signpost. She said what she meant, meant what she said, did what she said she'd do, and everyone who voted for her has a responsibility for what she did. But this idea, um, you know, tell me your your views and I'll give you a policy to meet it, I wouldn't be interested in politics if that were the basis. Can we look back at the post-war Labour governments? Yes. And just ask the question... Uh, if you divorce the rhetoric uh, from what actually happened, uh, whether, in fact, there has ever been a socialist government since 1945 in this country in the sense of uh, a a, a government that implemented a fundamental and irreversible shift in the balance of income, uh, wealth and power to working people and their families. Well, when you use the word socialist, you imply that I have some ideological test, a litmus paper test. Are you a socialist? I don't believe in that at all. If I go to my constituency and I try to lecture somebody who comes to my surgery about socialism and she says, Tony, I'm 80. 
My husband's died. I need a bungalow. I can't tell her about the irreversible uh, shift in the balance of wealth and power. She wants a bungalow. And I've learned everything from listening to people. Now, if you take the post-war government, it was a very significant government. Uh, it won a huge majority against Winston Churchill, who had about as much charisma as you could imagine, whereas Clem had no charisma. He had a short bald as a coot, had a little moustache, looked like Charlie Chaplin, and he won. Why? Because people said this in the war, and I remember it. We used to discuss it in the war. If you... We had unemployment in the 30s. We had the means test, we had fascism, we had rearmament. But we don't have unemployment in the war. If you could have full employment by killing Germans, why couldn't you have full employment? By building hospitals, recruiting nurses, building schools. And that's what we did. And the same argument's coming back now. I mean, I, I can't think of a more effective argument now than the one that I've put myself and others have put. A fraction of the cost of the Iraq war would have provide free drugs for everyone with AIDS in Africa. A fraction of the cost of the war would see we didn't have to close hospitals here. The Americans could have protected New Orleans. The Amer so I find these arguments are permanent. And so, you see, this is a, the, the, the wheel has come full cycle. And anyone comes forward and says, don't waste your money on Trident. Let's uh, uh, withdraw from Iraq where we've no right to be and let's concentrate on building up our own society. Everyone would go along with that. Well, just picking up that last point, at uh, the, the 1976 Labour conference, uh, which was at the time of the uh, IMF loan, uh, Jim Callaghan uh, made a famous speech in which he said, we used to think we could spend our way out of a recession and increase employment by cutting taxes and boosting government spending. I tell you in all candour that this option no longer exists. And that speech was uh, subsequently cited by Milton Friedman as a model of fiscal rectitude and one of the most frequently quoted uh, by him, with approval of that delivered by any politician anywhere. Absolutely right. Um, that's not a socialist government, is it? Well, I mean, I, I don't want to be personal about anybody, as I knew Jim and I liked him. But uh, don't think monetarism came with Mrs Thatcher. Jim Callaghan was a monetarist. Roy Jenkins, I remember him coming back from the group of ten when we were sitting in the cabinet and said, we won't support the pound unless you control money supply. Well, I went back to my economics books to find out what money supply was. It was an obsolete idea. But, of course, and uh, the truth is that that Labour cabinet, in the end, ended up fighting the unions, losing the election, handing over to Thatcher, and that's exactly what the IMF intended should happen. You say fighting the unions. In fact, in the so-called winter of discontent, uh, when the oil tankers went on, drivers went on strike, uh, you came close to having to ask the Queen to declare a national emergency. It. I wouldn't do it. Uh, and in, in order to enable the army to supply oil yeah, to the hospitals. Uh, and what you wrote in your diary was, I'm being sucked into a terrible military operation to hold the working class back. And there's no doubt I'm compromised up to the hilt by remaining in this bloody awful government. Well, that's true. I mean, but if you resign from a government, then there's a vote of confidence that night. Do you vote for the government you've resigned from? If there's an, they lose the vote of confidence election, do you stand as a candidate? No, you have to decide. I think the important thing is to use all the opportunities you have to present your argument. And I did present my arguments in the Cabinet and everywhere. And uh, and I was defeated on that occasion. But I wouldn't go to Balmoral to get a state of emergency. They wanted me to hand over truck, heavy, dangerous oil tanker tr trucks to be driven by young soldiers. I wouldn't do it. And I said, why don't you talk to Jack Jones? And they, I think it was Jack there then, or Ron Todd, whoever it was. And they nearly had a fit. But that whole winter of discontent was completely 
completely unnecessary, but as you quite rightly say, had a huge impact on the way that the public saw the trade unions. They were told they run the country. I've never seen a trade union run the country in my life. But we were told they were the... They called them the barons of the TUC. Now, actually, they're all elected, and to the best of my knowledge, barons are not elected. All the language was hostile. The feeling was whipped up, and actually, the unions were the victims of the winter of discontent, not the cause of the trouble. But Jim... Uh, a lovely guy, I liked him very much and, and so on, but he got it wrong at that time and, uh, and we shouldn't have resi- uh, given up to given way to the IMF we should have stood firm and it was not in the interest of the international financial community to bankrupt Britain and they knew it but the Treasury couldn't get us to make the cut so they went to the IMF and brought them in and, uh, and the Cabinet you know, well, capitulated in the nicest way it also, that government, Jim Callaghan's government, did not bring in the wealth tax that had been no. promised in the manifesto. Uh, it, there was the uh, referendum which led to um, a massive yes vote for the common market, mm-hmm. uh, which I think led to you uh, being um, uh, sent to energy instead of industry by Harold Wilson. Yeah. Um, uh, and then there was the Lib Lab Pact. Yeah. So in those governments, the 74 to 79 governments, uh, where there was on a number of issues that you found uh, very important in policy terms, uh, you lost the argument, but you stayed in the government. Oh, yes. Well, I'm nothing. I'm no ashamed of that at all. I mean, um, uh, if there's a war, like the thing that led Robin Cook to resign, that's absolutely correct when it's a fundamental issue. But, I mean, politics about argument. You put your case... And this idea, I went to my local party. I don't suppose any cabinet has ever done it. In the summer of 76, I went to my general committee and I said, this is the situation, exactly as you describe it. Shall I resign from the government or not? And they said, carry on, say what you believe, and if you're sacked, that's different. And I think they were right. I think once you start resigning every time you lose, I mean, no one would be in the cabinet for five minutes, but I won some very significant ones. They wanted to make cuts in welfare in 76, and I took the cabinet minutes from 1931 when Ramsay MacDonald capitulated, which were by then available, I photocopied them, circulated around the cabinet, made Jim furious. He said, I'm not a Ramsay MacDonald. I said, I'm not saying you are, Jim, but this is what Ramsay did in 31, and what happened? We were destroyed. And so you mustn't think it wasn't an effective argument, but of course you lose. And uh, Roy Jenkins lost on the question of the cuts. I think he wanted the cuts in social benefit. He lost. Should he have resigned? I don't know. I don't think sort of resignation, except on absolutely fundamental questions like war. I, I mean, I think uh, to what Robin Cook did was absolutely right. He left because it was wrong, it was immoral, illegal, unwinnable war, and he left the government and it did him an awful lot of good and did the party a lot of good. If we look at the Wilson government of 64 to 70, yeah. there again, uh, in retrospect, you didn't even describe its objects as being socialist. You said their objectives were improved economic management and growth. Yeah. Um, we had there was devaluation in 1967, which Jim Callaghan, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, had a few months earlier described as something whose purpose was to dis, to uh, reduce the living standards of every member of the working class. Uh, there was the wage freeze, the Prices mm-hmm. and Incomes Act, uh, cuts in public expenditure, mm-hmm. the most um, uh, savage deflation since the war. Uh, Barbara Castle's white paper in place of strife, which was going to mm-hmm outlaw wildcat strikes which I think you supported to begin with and then changed your mind. Not to begin with, not at the end. Yes. Um, And uh, 
declaration of emergency powers to counter the seamen strike uh, and support for the American war in Vietnam. Well, no, in fairness, sir, I mean, uh, Harold Wilson absolutely flatly refused to send any troops to Vietnam. He said in the cabinet one day, he said, I've just been over to have dinner with uh, Linda Johnson in the White House and Lyndon welcomed me as our closest dissociate. I mean, it's very much to Harold's credit that he would not send troops to Vietnam. And uh, But, of course, you're quite right. I mean, governments have, have a variety of records. On the other hand, I learned so much from cabinet experience and it, it, it moved me to the left. I came to realise that getting rid of Thatcher got you nowhere. I mean, there's all this per Thatcher out, Thatcher out. It's a waste of time. What's the policy? And I learned a great deal about it, and I'm not sorry I stayed in. The only thing I would be ashamed of would be if I ever thought I'd said anything I didn't believe in order to get on. I don't think I did that, but I made all the mistakes in the book, and they're all in the diary too. We'll come to mistakes uh, shortly, if we may, but just going back to Vietnam, the fact is that uh, although he didn't send troops, Harold Wilson did uh, openly support the bombing of North Vietnam, uh, and you wrote at the time uh, that the reason was we're terrified of saying anything that might upset the Americans. Oh, yes, you know, of course, America's always had a huge power. But you see, the day I was elected to Parliament, not a day anyone would forget, November the 30th, 1950, uh, Truman said he might use an atomic bomb in Korea. Clem Attlee, the Labour Prime Minister, flew straight to Washington and stopped it. The time of Suez in 56, when Eden persuaded the Israelis to attack Egypt so he could intervene to get back the canal, it was Eisenhower who wouldn't look at it and, and stopped it. And in the time of the Vietnam War, although Harold was giving general support, he wouldn't send troops. So this special relationship, this implication that it means you have to do everything you're told, is completely new. I mean, it's the Prime Minister believes that his duty is to tell us what Bush tells him to tell us. And uh, that is not my idea of a special relationship. Uh, one of the Cabinet Ministers, your colleagues, uh, Douglas Houghton, uh, in the 1967 uh, Wilson government, uh, said, never has any previous government done so much in so short a time to make modern capitalism work. Broadly true. Um, well, except in fairness, um, come back to public ownership. I brought the aircraft industry into public ownership. Why? Because we were pouring subsidies in. The shipbuilding industry collapsing. I brought that into public ownership. Otherwise, it would simply disappeared. I paid, I think, a cheque for 20 million quid for the ICL for the computer, keep the computer industry going. And, I mean, the story of deindustrialization, which you touched on earlier, is a very, very important story. In 1948, we launched 48% of all the ships launched in the world. Now there's one shipyard scrabbling for a trident refurbishing. 1970, we had the biggest motorbike industry in the world, bigger in America, Germany or Japan. It's gone. In 1974, we had the biggest machine tool a, a company in Europe and the biggest uh, motor car industry, they've gone. And I think that we have allowed our manufacturing base to go simply by default. If Hitler bombed a factory, we reopened it and built it. If a company closed a factory, we say, oh, that's market forces. I don't think people any longer really believe that market forces are the answer. I certainly don't. Well, you mentioned motorbikes. Uh, you, there was, in fact, the famous motorcycle Yes, there was, yes. Uh, and the question put at the time was, if there isn't a market for capitalist motorcycles, why is there going to be a market for cooperatively produced Well, you see, what I did was something I don't think anyone ever done before. I called in some of these consultants and I said, go and work for the shop steward. Don't work for the management. They've gone. Work for the shop stewards and see how you can make that a viable proposition. And they did and they kept going and then was killed. <coughs> 
excuse me, I asked the management consultants to work for the unions, and they did, and they came back with a scheme. And you see, I tell you why the establishment hated the cooperatives. Think for a moment. Sacking somebody is the first discipline of, of a capitalist comp- company. If you disbehave, we sack you. But closing the factory is the more important discipline. And I came along and I proved that Phoenix-like, out of the ashes of a closed company, you could bring life. <coughs> so sorry. But um, I do think keeping manufacturing in... After we've kept farming going for years, haven't we? We don't close a farm because uh, the farm's uneconomic. We now give farmers money to maintain the environment. We never gave miners money to maintain the pits or motor car companies. So since they take a completely uneconomic view, quite correctly, about agriculture, why should we let industry go? It was because industry was a source of trade union strength. And Mrs Thatcher hated the trade unions because... They represented a source of power she couldn't control, and that's why she turned on the miners, tried to destroy them, and now where are we? We've 300 years of coal under our territory, no miners to dig it, and we're fighting wars about energy. I mean, I ask you, have you ever heard of such lunacy to close down the source of energy at a time when people are now talking about reopening pits? I said to the miners the other day up in Durham, if you reopen a pit, ask Mrs Thatcher to do it for you. And they said, well, if we did, we'd drop her in it at the end, which is not an appropriate comment. Well, can I talk about just a, a, a bit more about capitalism? Yes. Uh, Jim Callaghan famously said to a Labour conference, I want it, when he was Chancellor, I, I want industry to be profitable. Uh, it's in your interest, that's the union's interest, that industry should be profitable. Uh, do you agree in principle with private industries making profit? Well, I mean, all schools are uneconomic, aren't they? All hospitals are uneconomic. And once you apply the test, market force test, why do we have elections? Surely the simplest thing would be when there's a vacancy, the candidates would put in a a bid, and on polling day, the returning officer would open the bids and say, Mr Jones has won this thing. Why have a prime minister? I would offer to do that job at twice, at half his salary, maybe a little bit better. I mean, once you start applying market forces, you don't have citizens anymore, you have consumers. And a consumer is not the same as a citizen. There are different arenas, aren't there? There's schools and there's elections on the one hand, but there is uh, private companies that uh, make things or produce things or uh, provide services. And the simple question is whether you, in principle, uh, see anything wrong with private companies making profit. Well, no, the question of who gets the profits, I mean, in the case of the United States at the moment, the profits are all, and in Britain, all going to the top and not to the people who do the work. But no, I'm particularly keen on small businesses. I came up with a scheme which was turned down predictably by the Common Market Commission that we would say to small companies employing less than 50 people, we'll abolish all taxation if you give us a share of your profits. So they wouldn't have only the paperwork. And it was a very good idea. I'm not against the entrepreneur at all. But in the end, you find you're dealing not with companies interested in profit, you're dealing with centres of power. I mean, the oil companies are bigger than nation states. And when I dealt with the oil companies, they treated me... uh, Well, I remember one of them saying, I'm not dealing with you, Mr Ben. And I said, why? And he said, well, because our philosophy is different. I said, thanks very much for telling me that. I was elected, and you're just 
a rich man. And if you don't want to cooperate with me, I'm not giving you any oil from the North Sea. So I kept them out. And a year later, they turned up and capitulated. I mean, you have to bargain with big companies. You can't just leave them to run the world because they have no interest in the British economy. Their only interest is in their profit. They don't care whether the British economy goes up or down. They just want profits and power. And by God, those I've dealt with so many multinational corporations in my life. And I tell you what they want and what they expect us to give them would destroy democracy completely, would even destroy health and education. Because, as you know, the level playing field the World Trade Organization is trying to introduce would mean that you wouldn't be allowed to subsidize your schools. You'd have to privatize them. And talking to Kenneth Kaunda, an old friend of mine from Zambia, he said, we had a great debt. The IMF came to us and said, we'll clear your debt if you'll sell all your schools and hospitals to multinational corporations. We were robbed by them. And he's right. That's why Chavez is winning. And you know the richest country in the world today, per capita? Norway. Why? Because they nationalised their oil. Can we look to the future and uh, the future of socialism in this country? Hmm? Um, is there not a fundamental problem that the people who are um, below the poverty line, the people who are the so-called underclass, are now a, a minority a significant minority, but electorally a minority. And in order to have the kind of distribution of wealth and power to the, that sector of, of the society, you need effectively to appeal to the altruism of the majority. No, not at all. I mean, I mean, clearly, but no people want good schools and hospitals, not just the so-called underclass. I mean, if you go to a local hospital and it isn't equipped to help you, I mean, whether you're quite well off... Up to scale, you understand. No, there's a tiny minority in Britain, a very, very rich, and they own everything and won't let you do it. And if you try, they say you're a communist, you're a Trotsky, you're out of touch. No, that's the problem. It isn't the minority of the poor, although there's not, I'm not sure there is a minority of the poor. It's the minority of the rich who run the place, and that's what it's all about. It's about democracy. Well, but the people who run the place are the electorate, and the electorate have well, voted in a government that, for the last nine years mm. has had a significantly lower basic rate of tax uh, than when Labour, old Labour was in in the 70s. Well, I've the got... Public, th the, mm. the voting public appears not to be prepared to pay higher rates of basic rate tax in order to have better public services. Well, I always said, uh, if you vote for me, I'll, I'll raise the level of taxation on the wealthy. Nobody's ever voted against me. Most people who ask a poll say they agree. But I've got an old friend, a former Democratic governor of Ohio, my wife's home state in America, Jack Gilligan. And last time I was him, he said, Tony, there will never be democracy in America while big business buys both parties and expects a payoff, whichever one wins. And American politics is dominated by wealth. You've no chance of getting on American politics. You've got millions and millions and millions of dollars. And that's not democracy. And I think people realize that. So they keep other people down by keeping them frightened and, and saying that any other idea is lunatic and so on. But actually, uh, don't underestimate people's intelligence. I think most people in this country would respond to a policy where you said we're going to concentrate on the public services we're going to see that public company uh, multinational are accountable we're not going to have our economic policy run by the central bank in Brussels, we don't elect, we're not having the commission which we don't elect tell us our trade policy, we're not having our foreign policy decided by Bush, I think if you put that forward you know, I mean you wouldn't get any support in the press but I think you get a lot of support from people Looking at the future of politics in this country 
Um, in an article in the Morning Star, uh, you advocated building alliances around issues. Mm. Pens- support the pensioners, support the unemployed, mm-hmm. support the women's movement, support the environmentalists, support the multi-ethnic movement. Uh, and you cited uh, the, the levellers, the toll puddle martyrs and the early trade unionists and said they didn't have a fully worked out alternative strategy. Um, isn't that really uh, a council of despair in the sense of uh, accepting that there is no real prospect uh, of a Labour government that is going to implement socialist policies in the foreseeable future? Exact opposite. The Labour Party came out of the struggle of people for the vote, for trade unions, for welfare, and it produced a party. And if you look at apartheid, I mean, if you'd been talking to me 50 years ago, you'd have said, now, Tony, be realistic. The whites control the army, the police, the media. In South Africa, there will never be the end. Mandela's in prison. You'd have been wrong. If you'd been talking to me 100 years ago about votes for women, you said, now, be realistic. Women have never had the vote. The Prime Minister, Mr Asquith, said, if women have the vote, it'll undermine parliamentary democracy. You'd have said that to me. Or even when Swampy was being arrested by a constable for causing trouble about the environment, you said, now, be realistic, Tony. Swampy's completely way out. Now the Prime Minister can't make a speech without talking about the environment. All progress comes from underneath. What we need now is a strong movement, popular movement, in favour of the things we need, and you wait and see. If the Prime Minister doesn't take any notice of the party conference, the Cabinet or Parliament, you'll get a message from the spin doctor. Be careful. This is what people want, and you'll have to provide it. But all the examples you've cited, um, suffragettes, uh, apartheid, uh, are examples where people were disenfranchised. People yes. aren't disenfranchised. Well, oh, they are in effect, aren't they? Oh, yes. I think uh, people are managed and not represented. There's a hell of a difference between voting for somebody to fight for you and voting for somebody to manage you. And well, I think we're, I don't think we're represented. I think there's a crisis of representation, and I, ma- I care more about that than the details of socialist ideology. But what is there to stop uh, a party... Um, uh, springing up or people taking over the left, uh, the, the Labour Party, who say, we are going to uh, represent you without managing you. Nothing, and that's why you have to campaign for it. You're quite right. There's nothing to stop it happening. And it will happen, and it'll happen. And maybe, I hope it isn't true, but it may be the Labour Party, if it is defeated, will discover what it's about, and all these movements that are now unrepresented will find they've got a friend in court. But I'm, I'm not predicting, because that's foolish. I'm simply saying what I believe, what I think is needed, and what I think would get an audience, and you just have to go on at it. I mean, life is not full of successes. It's full of failures from which you learn. Well, you described uh, when uh, Roy Jenkins and David Owen uh, left uh, the Labour Party to set up the uh, SDP, uh, you said that they were people who had uh, failed to persuade uh, the people in the party that they had devoted their lives to to follow the policies that they believed in. Looking at the current situation of New Labour, objectively, is that not a fair uh, statement in relation to the views that you have been advocating for the last 30 years? Well, I I, am putting forward the policies of the party. The party wants uh, undoubtedly overwhelming to the end of the war. The party undoubtedly wants the railways publicly owned. The party conference has said that pensions should be linked to earnings, and the Prime Minister takes no notice of it at all. You see, we are coming to the end of an era. I think that uh, when the Prime Minister goes, and he says he will, you won't find a Blairite for love and money within about five minutes. Well, uh, do you, uh, can you identify uh, within the Cabinet 
any left-wing figures around whom you think that the left can unite? Politics isn't about heroes and and villains. I had to mention a few names because you asked me. Politics is about the arguments you put forward and so on. And I I served in a very right-wing cabinet, uh, more than one right-wing cabinet. But, uh, you see, as I say, politics isn't about finding a new hero or gallop onto the stage in a white horse and say, vote for me and you'll solve your problem. I just don't believe that's how politics is made. And, uh, you know, with all the modernisation that the Prime Minister advocates, he couldn't modernise us out of votes for women. He couldn't say on conclu- on balance, I think, votes for women have been damaging. He couldn't do it. And we've got to create circumstances where no government, Tory or Labour, could do what is now being done to us in the name of reform. I mean, actually, uh, Churchill was well to the left of the present Prime Minister. Churchill nationalised the Persian oil company in 1912 for three million quid. But leaders have to be elected. Yes. Uh, and uh, can you see within the parliamentary party uh, a nucleus of support for the kind of views that you are advocating? I think there is public support for most of the things that I'm talking about. The good public services available on the basis of need without no privatisation. Students shouldn't be held back by getting into huge debt. I mean, I've got ten grandchildren, and you read now that when somebody graduates, they probably owe ten or fifteen thousand quid. Isn't that wonderful? Keep people in debt, and they won't cause trouble to their employer. If you get, I think the BMI, uh, the BMA said that the average doctor. Leaves uh, graduates with forty-one thousand pound debt. Marries another doctor, sixty-two, uh, eighty-two thousand. Wants a mortgage, another hundred thousand. If you've got a mortgage and a debt of one hundred fifty thousand pounds, you're not going to cause any trouble to anybody. Debt slavery has come back, and it's very, very clever. But it has had the effect of making people very nervous. So you have to give people confidence. When you retired from Parliament yes. in two thousand and one, you said that you campaigned. Uh, in 25 constituencies for the Labour Party to be yes, returned. I did. Yes, I did. And that you were desperate to see a Labour victory. Yes. Uh, even though it was the most conservative uh, yes. manifesto ever put before the electorate. Yes. yes. Your words. Um, isn't that just tribalism, like supporting Spurs or Arsenal? No, it's not at all. You, you can't have a million parties each competing with one another on the left. You have to work with other people. I mean, that is common sense. Nobody would have voted for me as Tony Benn in Bristol or Chesterfield it's because I was a member of the Labour movement. And I'm very proud of the Labour movement. And I've never associated the Labour movement with the particular policies of the leaders at the time. So but you didn't, you didn't support most of the... Uh, policies in that manifesto. Well, but I, I don't think that's quite the question. I joined the Labour Party on my 17th birthday, as you mentioned, and I intend to die in it, but not yet. Although, funnily enough, uh, I had a letter from the general, an email from the General Secretary of the Labour Party that day, saying, "Have you ever thought of joining the Labour Party?" <laughs> because you know, and you know, when Jim Callaghan was. Uh, retired, he had a phone call from somebody from party headquarters saying, have you ever thought of helping the Labour Party? And Jim said, well, I have been Prime Minister twice, or have been Prime Minister, and, you know, all this PR politics is so phony. No, when I go around, and I do, I've done hundreds and hundreds of meetings since I left Parliament, and well over a thousand broadcasts and written three books, I tell you, I feel a part of the Labour movement. I could never separate myself from the Labour movement, because I think it represents the finest tradition from 
Peasants Revolting, This Revolution, Toll Puddle Martyrs, Tom Paine, everything uh, that I believe in. And, and, uh, but not New Labour. And you criticise yeah, New, New Labour for it, abandoning the, the, the policies which yeah. they believed in because yeah, but, the voters didn't want them. Yeah, but New Labour is the smallest political party ever known in Britain. But as they're all in the Cabinet, they're quite powerful. Can you imagine anyone going out canvassing now saying, vote for me and I'll abolish inheritance tax. Vote for me and I'll have another war to help America against Iran. Vote for me and I'll... They, they get no support, but they use the Labour movement to get there as a sort of ladder but they're not a part of the Labour their philosophy... But you were happy to campaign on a manifesto with which you didn't believe Well I argued for the defeat of the Conservative Party the election of a Labour Party because I believe in the Labour movement but as I say I've seen the Labour Party swing from left to right so often in my life and many of the things the post-war government did I subsequently... I do know I never knew until we'd left office that actually had built an atomic bomb without telling the cabinet. It was an outrageous thing to do. But it didn't alter my conviction that Clem Attlee was the greatest prime minister we've had. Coming back to where we started, uh, your 1978 speech to the Republicans, (coughs) where you predicted that the next decade would see a growth of democratic socialism against the ideas of monetarism and corporatism, uh, would you make that prediction today? Well, Hugo Chavez would say Mr. Ben was right. He was a bit late, but he was right. And so would Evo Morales, in, uh, uh, and so maybe would others. But in this country? Well, uh, you see, you're, you're trying you're trying to suggest, I understand what you're doing, you're very skillful interrogation, trying to suggest if you don't win everything all the time, everything you do is a waste of time. I don't believe that. I believe that all progress comes from underneath, that anyone can make a socialist speech. I've done a few myself. What matters is whose side are you on when the going gets rough. That is the way by which you judge people. It's because it's easy to be, as I say, to make flowery speeches. But when the miners are under attack, were you for them or you against them? When the print workers are under attack, were you for them or you against them? When people are sent to Guantanamo Bay, are you for them or you against them? And well, that's the, oil the tankers, you were oh, The oil tankers in 1979, the winter of discontent, the oil tank drivers? Oh, well, I was totally opposed to the policy that led to the winter of discontent. I was in the cabinet at the time. But you and came I, close to having to go to the Queen and ask oh, for a state of emergency. But I wouldn't go. They wanted me to go to Balmoral and ask for a state of emergency. I don't know whether that would have been a resigning issue. could never come out. I wouldn't do it. And they lost. And Jim Callahan didn't know what was going on, and I was in regular touch with the trade unionists. I knew perfectly well what was going on. But I was a part of a, of a policy that followed from the IMF decision, which I disagreed with. Last question. Uh, in 2001, you wrote that in 150 years of trying to build a better world, socialism has had some successes and some failures, and we have to learn from them. Yes. What lessons have you learned? Oh, well, first of all, you can't impose it by force. I mean, the whole Russian Revolution, the attempt to... Uh, have a, a ruling class, uh, the, you know, the workers will take charge, the new uh, avant-garde, what do they call vanguard party, it's a complete failure. It's about democracy. And, uh, and I think that uh, you have to persuade people and you have to go on trying to persuade people. But it's very interesting to me that some ex-communists of the Labour Party have been able to shift from Stalin to Blair and it hasn't been much of a shift. I won't mention their names because it's too personal but you know who I mean. The shift from Stalin to Blair is a minor adjustment. The struggle for a decent life and more democracy and the right to control the Labour Party, to start for the members to control the party, for the conference to have some say and the policy, for the cabinet to have... Those are enormously important struggles and I don't see any of them 
uh, irretrievably lost. Forgive me for being an optimist, but you see, when Mrs Thatcher said there's no alternative, with what you've been saying very politely and skillfully, she said, whatever you do, whatever you say, however you organise, it won't work, don't even try. And there is no alternative. It was the most powerful political statement I've ever heard in my life, and it paralysed people. But the World Social Forum says another world is possible. And when you say another world is possible, say, oh, come on, let's get on. What are we doing? When's the meeting? When's the demonstration? How can we organise? And I think another world is possible is the spirit of optimism, which I feel it won't happen, whatever you do, but if you work at it and you're right and people support you, it'll happen. I mean, I feel as if this has been an obituary programme, but at least I've been able to answer back. Well, you said when you lost the leadership election to Neil Kinnock in 1988 by 11% to 88%, you made a joke of it and said, I dare say the General Secretary of the Scribes and Pharisees announced in Jerusalem in AD 32, what's the point in following a leader who gets crucified? <laughs> that was a rather irreverent comment, but uh, anyway, you have to... See, there is some case for consistency. My eldest son was in uh, Northern Ireland the other day, and he was driven round by a Paisley cab driver who cursed Sinn Féin from beginning to end. But when my son paid the bill, he said, I'll say this for Jerry Adams. He stuck to his guns. And I told Jerry Adams that he nearly collapsed with laughter, and so did Ian Paisley. There is some merit in consistency. And I think that, I think if you are known to believe something and not want anything, that combination that comes to you when you're 80, uh, I do think that uh, it gives you grounds to believe that we are not heading for Armageddon, though we may be if New Labour and uh, the Republican Party carry us much further forward along that road to damnation. Tony Benn, thank you very much indeed. Guardian Unlimited.